bow together in prayer. Holy God, you are a God beyond all comparison. There's no God like you on earth, no one in the heavens who can compare to you. You exist eternally. Before the creation of heaven and earth, you existed. There is no place that can contain you. You made the universe. You are greater than the universe. And yet you have deigned to dwell in your people and call them by name and establish them as the temple in which the Holy Spirit lives. And now we come into your throne room with boldness and confidence because of the blood of Christ. And at the same time, we are gathered here as a people, a temple in which your spirit dwells. And you ask of us and demand of us, and it's only fitting that we should be holy, not simply set apart as owned by you, but holy in behavior and thought. And yet we know all men sin. And we cannot say at any time, I have no sin or I have not sinned. If we say either, we are a liar. And yet, because of Christ, you're willing to forgive us. So you did for Israel when you built the great temple. The prayer that Solomon gives is amazing. Probably isn't the way we would have prayed, but he knew what the people needed. And so now as we look into this prayer, teach us, humble us, make us open, Make us desire purity with even greater intensity and cause us to forsake all of our sin and to pray for forgiveness. Do this for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. I was talking to someone Friday morning. I don't even know how the discussion turned this way, but it turned to what is absolute truth. And uh, I made some comment, uh, oh, I, I think maybe we're, we're talking about uh, <clears throat> homosexuals. And I think I said, you know, it doesn't even take the Bible to be smart enough to know that that's not right. Well, that's your truth. I said, well, I believe in an absolute truth. Yes, you believe in the Bible and whatever it says, that's what you hold to. You're arrogant. I said, and what do you believe in? Whatever you think is right. You're arrogant. Well, and it just inflamed a little more and a little more. And then finally I said, okay, let's walk away friends. But here's a problem we have. You do agree there's absolute truth. But you're irrational about it. Because you think I have absolute truth and you have absolute truth. And we don't agree. Therefore, absolute no longer means Absolute. Hmm, you Christians, you're just all alike. Well, so when you talk to somebody like that, you know they are unwilling to admit any 
concept of sin, except maybe sexual harassment, that's wrong. Maybe murder, that's wrong. But so many things that the scriptures say are unholy, are evil, such people call good. Well, if you're like that, you can be pretty self-satisfied. You can be kind of smug about life. I mean, after all, <laughs> I listened to a podcast the other day where they were mocking. Who says there's a God? Who can prove there's a God? Well, when we come to this record about the temple and its completion and its dedication, it is the nation of Israel we're talking about. The nation that was chosen by God and he displayed his marvelous wonder when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and took them to Mount Sinai where he made covenant with them. And he built a system by which they could draw somewhat near. And he would be their God and they would be his people. And they wandered around for 40 years because they were sinful. And finally, when the generation from 40, 20 years old and up died, the glory of God was scattered in the wilderness, so it says in numbers, in their deaths. Then they went in to the promised land and they crossed the Jordan. And they went into the promised land and again they fell into sin. The day of the kings came and Saul was abysmal. And so God selected David and made him king. And David did this amazing thing. He was like God. He took the tabernacle and he tore it in half like God did with Adam. God took flesh, a rib, not just a rib, flesh, out of Adam's side after putting him to sleep. And then he fashioned a woman and he brought the woman to the man and the man was now two people in one glorified. That's why Paul can say, well, the man is the image and glory of God, so he ought not to have his head covered. But the woman, the woman, she's the glory of the man. You want to know what a man's like? <laughs> Look at his woman. So the temple was separated. And David carted off with the ark of the covenant, and first it was a disaster, and Uzzah died, and then he regrouped and decided to do things according to the law, and he brought the ark up with all kinds of sacrificing to the city of David, Zion, and there he put it in a tent, but these two remained separate. And then God made promises to him about a son sitting on his throne forever. He would have a dynasty if his sons would obey. And his son would build a permanent structure. And we're looking at the part of Scripture when the structure is done. It's called a house. It's called a temple. 
It's a display of God's cosmic universe. And we started in chapter 5 where the ark was brought, again, with lots of sacrificing on the way from the city of Zion, the tent, and now it's brought into the temple, the house where God's name is going to be. And all the furniture of the tabernacle was brought in. So the two were made one flesh, something new, something more glorious. And it's demonstrated in our passage today, not just in talking about the prayer, but that's what we're going to talk about. But once the prayer was over, and once Solomon prayed, rise up, O God, to your resting place, fire came out and burned up the sacrifice. And the glory of God appeared, appeared, and the priest could not minister. The house was too full of the glory of God. And all the people fell on the pavement on their faces. And they said, Indeed, his loving kindness is good. It lasts forever. Now, In that scenario, when the tent was completed and the priests were anointed and the inauguration took place, fire came from inside the tent and burnt up the sacrifice on the altar. Now the temple is created. And David says in our passage today, how can this house contain you? It cannot. Only your name can be there. In other words, it's called the house of Yahweh. This is Yahweh's house. But in actuality, he doesn't live there. It cannot contain him. And so now when the fire comes to burn up the sacrifice, it does not come from within the temple. It comes from heaven. Now, this tearing apart and putting back together is a new, more glorious stage in Israel's history, revealing the greatness of their God. This is a magnificent passage. We could spend forever on it. And the main central part is the prayer. But it's surrounded on either side by these events about Well, how this came about, the promises that were made to David and how Solomon is now sitting on the throne. He rose up and sat down on the throne and he built Yahweh's house. And then you come to the end of the prayer and the introductory frame is repeated. So we have an opening and we have a closing. Right here in the center is this prayer. And this prayer has seven sections to it. And we're going to look at it in just a minute. And this prayer in its very opening says, listen and forgive. And then one, two, three, four, seven sections come reeling off of Solomon's lips, asking God to hear. Look to this place. Hear and forgive. Seven. Seven. Oh, 
that sends you back to Genesis. Now, you'll be happy to know that I'm not going to try to compare these seven sections to the days of creation, although one is compelled. Why seven? Of course, seven, for a reason. It goes back to look at creation. We're not going to look at that. We're just going to look at the prayer. This is magnificent. And this is what we need. Now, when we think about it, now we're going to see in this prayer two words. One word is repent, sometimes translated return. It's the word shub in Hebrew, and it just means to turn and come back. And another word you can see is the word acknowledge or confess. And the word confess is a word that comes from to know, to say, yes, Yahweh is God. That's how you acknowledge that. So two words that are related to the confession of sin and turning and repentance. We pick up those same two words in the New Testament. So on the day of Pentecost, what should we do? Their hearts were pricked. What do we do? Repent each one of you. Change your mind. You put him to death because you said he's not Christ. Now change your mind, repent, turn around. And you come to the epistle of 1 John. And you see the word confession. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And confession matches that word acknowledge. That's what confession means. Acknowledge it. Now, when you come and you ask God for forgiveness, one thing you're doing is you are confessing this is sin. You, Yahweh, are right. When you come and ask for forgiveness, the second thing you're doing is you are saying, Lord, I turn from my sin. Now, the turning is a little problematic. The confession for, oh, the majority of Christians is not so difficult. We agree with the scriptures. We know what sin is. Sometimes we rationalize and try to hide things away as if it's not sin. But we know. It's this turning part that gets tricky because we intend to, we want to, and we don't always get it done. And so we come again and we confess again. And so at the end of the prayer, that's, that's exactly what David has said. When they sin, for no one is immune to sin. It's true even after the cross. Nobody in this room is immune to sin. You sinned on your way to church today. And you can foolishly say to yourself, okay, right before the bread and the cup, I'm going to confess all my sin and I'll be pure to take the bread and the cup. No, John says, if you say I have no sin, you deceive yourself. You're just a liar. No, we're sinful people. Because we cannot possibly measure up to the glory of God. Our very existence then becomes a moment of sin. Now, this is about Yahweh's house. We're, we're going to come to Yahweh's house. Well, if you go to the White House, there's a certain decorum that goes on there. You've got to do things in a certain way. Different people in this church treat their house differently. 
you know, you get new carpet, you may make people take off their shoes when they walk in, you know, till the carpet's a little more worn. You have certain standards. God has standards at his house. And when you come to God's house by invitation, you got to be cleaned up. That's what we do every Sunday when we come. Because we're coming. Here we are, a temple. The Holy Spirit lives right here in all of us. We're God's temple. And now we're meeting together to praise God, and we come as sinners. And so right at the outset of the meeting, we admit we are sinners. We need forgiveness. So did Israel. So here's this big, grand house in Jerusalem, in the land. You'll notice as we work our way through the prayer, these three things become important. The land's very important. This is God's land. He gave it to them. The city becomes important. This is the holy city. This is where God chose to place his name. And then you center in in the very center of that city and you come to God's house. He doesn't live there in the sense that he takes up residence except by his name because no house can contain him. And so it's Yahweh's house. And when you come to Yahweh's house, certain things are required. Turn, if you would, then to 2 Chronicles chapter 6. And look, if you would, uh, we'll start at verse 14. And he said, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, There is no God like thee in heaven or on the earth, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to thy servants who walk before thee with all their heart, who has kept with thy servant David, my father, that which thou hast promised him. Indeed, thou hast spoken with thy mouth and hast fulfilled it with thy hand as it is this day. So now we're about to start this prayer. And he's saying, okay, now, God, this is what you did. This is who you are. No God's like you. You keep covenant with your people. And in this ark that's in this building... Right in it are the two tablets of stone that is the covenant between God and man. We talked about that last week. God keeps covenant with us. Our covenant is not the Mosaic covenant, although the Mosaic covenant is contained in our covenant. Our covenant is the new covenant. There are still requirements within the new covenant. Some people like to say it's unconditional, and in one sense it is unconditional. But once you're chosen by God and you're brought into covenant with him, there are conditions. You must do this, this, and this. And if you don't do them, all problems result. So he says, okay, this is the covenant. I mean, you're a different kind of God. You've made covenant. And uh, notice... He says, you promise this with your mouth, and it's been fulfilled with your hand. And uh, we're not going to read the whole section, but this comes up two or three times, mouth and hand. And so mouth, how did he promise it with his mouth? God promised it with his mouth through the prophet. First Chronicles chapter 17. 
How did God fulfill it? God fulfilled it with his hand. Who's his hand? Well, if you look at the construction of the temple and the king's palace, you have the temple and just a little pathway between the two, and then you have the temple. Where is, I mean, you have the king's palace. Where's the king? He's on the right hand of God. He is God's right hand. And Solomon's going to say, the temple I built, the temple I built, the building I built. So God says it by his prophet, and he does it by Solomon. Look at verse 16. Now, therefore, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, keep with thy servant David, my father, that which thou hast promised him, saying, uh, you shall not lack a son to sit on the throne of Israel, if only your sons take heed to their ways to walk in my law as you have walked in my law. So Solomon's sitting on the throne over here at the right hand of the temple. And now the question is, in the future, Solomon's here. Now, are, th are there going to be future kings? That's God's promise. You're going to have a dynasty. And the promise is conditional in one sense, if your sons walk in my ways. Well, so we know the history of Judah. We know the history of Israel. Well, Judah is where the covenant is. And in Judah, some kings walked in the ways. But in the end, the nation went into captivity. Prayer 7, the nation went into captivity because the kings and the people did not walk in the ways of God. And so we get this long history from A.D. 586 all the way down to the inauguration of Jesus Christ on the cross when he was crowned with thorns and there was a placard above him, the king of the Jews. Between that time, no king. But Jesus is a Davidic king. So in that sense, it's unconditional. Then look at verse 17. Now therefore, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, let thy word be confirmed, which thou hast spoken to thy servant David. But will God indeed dwell with man mankind on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain thee. How much less this house which I have built. So he's acknowledging, I'm going to talk about this house. And I'm going to say, you know, when people look at it, listen to them. When they come to it and they pray, listen to them. But God, I recognize this house can't contain you. It's the place where your name is. It's the house of Yahweh. But heaven and the highest heaven can't contain you. Have you ever thought about it? In Genesis chapter 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God existed before that creation. So when he creates the heavens and the earth, 
It cannot contain him. He's bigger than the creation of the heavens and the earth. And now verse 19 is the preamble to the prayer. So verse 19. Yet, even though this house cannot contain you, yet have regard to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication, which just means, the word supplication here means asking for God's favor. O Yahweh, my, my God, to listen to the cry. The word cry here is lamentation. To listen to the lamentation and to the prayer which thy servant prays before thee, that thine eyes may be open towards this house day and night, towards the place of which thou hast said that, that thou hast said someone that you would put thy name there to listen to the prayer which thy servant shall pray towards this place and listen to the supplications of thy servant and of thy people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear thou from thy dwelling place in heaven, hear thou and forgive. So the prayer is all about forgiveness. Now there are a couple sections that don't mention forgiveness. I'm going to contend that they imply forgiveness. Seven sections to this prayer. The first section is about swearing an oath. Look at verse 22. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and he comes and he takes an oath before thine altar in this house, then hear thou from heaven and act and judge thy servants, punishing the wicked by bringing on by bringing his way on his own head and by justifying the righteous according to his righteousness. Now, what we're talking about is occasions where, where two people say, well, let me give you Exodus 22. In Exodus 22, you're going on vacation and you've got a dog and you've got to take your dog and keep it at somebody's house. So you bring it over to Craig's house and you say, would you keep this dog for me? Oh, please don't make me keep the dog. Oh, Craig, I don't have anybody to keep the dog. Okay, I'll keep the dog. And then you come back and you say, where's the dog? I don't know. The dog ran off. Then we got to go up to the house of Yahweh and you say, are you sure the dog ran off, Craig? I think you killed the dog. <laughs> so I got to swear an oath. The dog ran off. And here we are standing in front of the altar where an animal ascends. That's you up to God. You're right in God's presence. And God judges. And if Craig's lied, his wickedness is going to come down on his own head. 
and the righteous man is going to go free. Well, the assumption is if you're willing to go up the altar and to take an oath, you will be innocent. But here's what we do. We come to the temple and we take an oath between two Israelites and God is going to judge. That's the first scenario. And the sinner is going to have his wickedness upon his head. And the just man is going to live in his righteousness. Next scenario, defeated before an enemy. Verse 24. And if thy people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against thee and they return to thee and confess thy name. They repent and they acknowledge you are Yahweh and pray and make supplication. Yahweh be favorable towards me before thee in this house. Then hear thou from heaven and forgive the sin of thy people Israel and bring them back to the land which thou hast given to them and to their fathers. Now, here's a case where it's like the case of Achan. They went to battle. I said it wrong. It's like the case of Ai. They go to battle and they expect to win. And 3,000 people are killed. Or is it 300? I don't recall. I didn't look it up. And, and Joshua cannot figure out what's wrong. What happened? They had sinned. Now, they were expecting victory. They got defeat. And now they know we have sinned. We don't think that way today. No, we're told, follow the signs, follow the signs, follow the science. Why is there a hurricane that comes on New Orleans? Follow the science. In other words, God's out of the equation. Why is California burning up? Follow the science. It's because of our air pollution. Things are changing. Well, that may be true. But has anyone stopped to say, oh, we have sinned. COVID-19, the cry is, follow the science. I haven't even hardly heard a preacher say, what? Maybe God is talking to us. We have sinned. Anybody thought of that? Well, then what? Then you say, well, wait a minute. What have we done wrong? And you confess, yes, Yahweh's right, and I turn from my sin. Next scenario, verse 26. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain, because they have sinned against thee, and they pray towards this place 
It's a long ways for a lot of people to come. What do they do? They turn towards the house and they say, that, that's the house of Yahweh. That's from where Yahweh does his work. It's at that house sacrifices are made. It's there where he forgives sin. You turn and from this place and they confess thy name and turn from their sin which thou, with which thou dost afflict them. Then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of thy uh, forgive the sin of thy servants servants and the people thy people Israel indeed teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on thy land which thou hast given to thy people for an everlasting inheritance. So in this case, they know they're wrong because it's part of the covenant. If you disobey me, I'm gonna make the heavens like iron and no rain's gonna come. Now no rain comes and the people say, whoops, we have sinned. And what is Solomon saying? When they confess your name, and they repent, forgive them. And then teach them from this incident to walk in your way. So they learn from their sin and they learn what you do. But forgive and bring rain once again. Then the next scenario, starting in verse 28. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is blight or mildew, if there is locust or grasshopper, if their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague and whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all thy people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own pain and spreading his hands towards this place, then hear thou from heaven thy dwelling place and forgive and render to each according all his ways, whose uh, heart thou knowest, for thou knowest, for thou alone knowest the hearts of uh, of all thy of the people. As as long as I lost my place, that they may that they may fear thee and walk in thy ways as long as they live in the land which thou hast given to your people. So now, here are all these different things. Now, if you go back to Deuteronomy 28, there they all are. They're part of what God's going to do if the people sin. Now they sin. And what do they do? Stretch out their hands to heaven, and they say, You are God. 
forgive. And God forgives. Now, under the new covenant, when you come to Hebrews chapter 10, in Hebrews chapter 10, we're told all of our sin is forgiven. And God remembers it no more. But you have to think of two different ways about sin. One is the totality of our sin was nailed to the cross with Jesus, and it's taken away. But when we live in life, like husband and wife, they're committed to one another. But they fail one another. They sin against each other. The marriage is not in danger. It's secure. But they sin. And fellowship is destroyed. And so what do they do? They confess their sin, and forgiveness takes place, and they learn. Oh, let's walk in a different way. Let's not go down this path again. And what does God do? God forgives. Look at the fifth scenario. It's about foreigners. This is amazing. Also, concerning the foreigner who is not from thy people Israel, when he comes from a far country for thy great name's sake and thy mighty hand and thine outstretched arm, when they come and pray towards this house, then Hear thou from heaven, from thy dwelling place, and do according to all for which, uh, for which the foreigner calls to thee, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know thy name and fear thee as do thy people Israel, and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by thy name. In other words, you look over to the house or you come to the house and you're saying, here's God's house. He operates from here. And you're a foreigner. And you watch Israel and you see this great God they have and what he does for them. You see that his arm is stretched out to help them. He opens his hand for their sake. And you say, I need help. Now, answer whatever they ask. Now, you know, it's not whatever. Of course, what they're looking for is what the prayer is about. They're looking to know God. They're looking for forgiveness. And they look towards the temple and they pray, and God answers their prayer, and this spreads then throughout the land. Now, of course, we don't have a temple central like that in Jerusalem anymore. We have a church that is a temple that is spread all across this globe, and people are watching the church. And the question is, when they watch the church, do they see and know something about the great name of Yahweh because the church is called by his name, Jesus? And do they see his arm outstretched for them and his hand opened up for them so that they say, you know, what that church has, that's what I want. Look at the next scenario, 
Number six, when they go to battle. When that people go out to battle against their enemies, to whatever way thou shalt send them. Now, of course, Israel's going out with swords and spears and chariots. Not us. We're going out with the sword of the word. We're going out with prayer. And they pray to thee towards this city, which thou hast chosen, and the house which I have built for thy name. Then hear thou from heaven their prayer and their supplications and maintain their cause. Now, in this one section, you don't see anything about sin. Instead, God sends them out as his army, as he's sent out, us out as his gospel army. And in the mission, as they go, they pray. And they ask for God's favor. And Solomon's prayer is that God would listen and maintain their cause. The word cause is the word mishpat. The word mishpat is what you do when you're making a decision about justice. You make a judgment. In other words, when Israel was sent out against their enemies by God, judgment was taking place. When we are sent out by God with the gospel, judgment is taking place. By accordance to how they respond to the gospel, God is making a judgment, maintain their cause. In other words, be favorable, help them give the gospel, and maintain justice. This is the prayer. But the climax is the last, number seven. And you have to remember, this is being written not to Israel of Solomon's day. This is being written to Israel while they're in exile. Well, some of them have come back to rebuild the temple, but the majority are still in exile, scattered throughout Persia. This is written to them. And they're learning about how God operates. And the climax is the one that is most applicable to them. Look what it says. Verse uh, 36. When they sin against thee, for there is no man who does not sin, and thou art angry with them, and dost deliver them into the enemies, in, into to their enemies, so that they are, so that they take them away captive to a land far off or near. If they take thought in the land where they are taken captive, and repent and make supplication to thee in the land which they're in the land of their captivity saying we have sinned we have committed iniquity we have acted wickedly so what's combined here now are the three ways you can say you've sinned in hebrew this is the totality we sinned We've committed iniquity. We've acted wickedly. When God casts 
the nation of Israel out of their land and cast the nation of Judah out of their land, it's because they had done the ultimate of sin. They have committed apostasy. They have gone after other gods. We've sinned. We've committed iniquity. We have acted wickedly. If they return to thee with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity where they have been taken captive and pray towards their land which thou hast given to their fathers and the city which thou hast chosen for chosen and the city which thou hast chosen and towards the house which I have built for thy name, then hear from heaven, from thy dwelling place, their prayer and supplications, and maintain their cause and forgive thy people who have sinned against thee. So here's this message that goes out to the people who are dispersed in captivity, who have committed the great sin, and if they pray, and if they supplicate you, and they say, we have sinned, and they look at the land that you gave to their fathers, and they look towards Jerusalem that you chose for your name, and they look at the house that I've built, the house that's called by your name, then God maintain their cause and forgive. Now, what's their cause? Here's where we're in because our time is gone. Remember, in connection with the persecution of Stephen, a wide persecution took place and so many Jews were dispersed. And in the book of Peter, they're called foreigners and strangers, aliens. Uh, most Christians today think about that in terms of us being uh, foreigners and strangers on the earth. We're looking for That's not what it means. They were the Jews who were dispersed, the Christian Jews who were dispersed into another land because of persecution. And what happened? Now they had a new cause. They were dispersed to carry the gospel. Israel had committed a great sin, and they're dispersed into Babylon, and then Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome. They can confess their sin, and they can be forgiven, but their cause is a new cause now, and it's the cause of the gospel, which happened in Persia, and Greece, and Rome. So synagogues were spread all through the land where the name of Yahweh was taught. This is an incredible prayer. And we're reminded as believers, okay, we need forgiveness over and over again. In fact, when you come to the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us. And it is the section of the prayer that is highlighted because then Jesus says after the prayer, for if you forgive those who trespass against you, I will forgive you. But if you will not forgive those who trespass against you, neither will you be forgiven. Wait a minute, I thought all of our sin was forgiven. But of course, if we obstinately hang on to a sin or two, then God will not forgive us that sin. 
It's forgiven eternally, but living here in life, we will pay the consequences of that sin because it remains unforgiven and we will remain out of fellowship with God and with others. If you forgive those who trespass against you, you'll be forgiven. But if you will not, then you will not be forgiven. God's house is a house of prayer. And you notice in the prayer, it's for Jews, for God's covenant people, but it's also a place that attracts foreigners who come and find the great name of Yahweh with an outstretched arm and a hand open. And Solomon says, accept them. Accept them. Let's stand. Father, we thank you that in Christ we have forgiveness. We thank you that you are a gracious God and because of pouring out your wrath upon him at the cross, any time we as believers, when we sin, we can come and you are willing to forgive. And you do forgive. And the, the guarantee is that your son rose from the dead. We know you forgive us because you paid for our sin at the cross. Help us to be people who learn the lesson from each sin, not to walk down that road anymore. Help us be people who learn from our sin when we confess and experience the freedom of forgiveness, to walk in the ways of righteousness. Teach us to do that. We thank you for Solomon, for his prayer, and we thank you now for the greater Solomon who hung on a cross and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And he is our king, and he's forgiven us. And we thank you in his name. Amen.